More calls for new Texas gun laws, but that's fallen on deaf ears in Austin. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he is Jeremy S. Wallace, and he has been everywhere. You know that song, Jeremy, I've been everywhere? Oh, yeah. Johnny Cash, and then it was it was remade by a Texas guy, and I'm trying to remember his name. It'll probably come to me a little bit later, but it, you've heard the Texas version, right, where he just does a bunch of Texas songs? Oh, yeah. And, and you... Could do a version of it, right? Yeah, I'm getting with all there. the cities that you were at in the last week. You were everywhere. You were in places that I've never even heard of. Yeah, I'm, I was in places that are like almost Oklahoma, uh, where I had to double check to make sure I hadn't actually gone across the state line. So I've right. been to places I haven't been before. So. The dirt was red. Of course, you can find Jeremy's work at HoustonChronicle.com, and you can find me at QuorumReport.com. I want to start with the latest on Uvalde. I'm not going to let this be dropped from the headlines, uh, Jeremy. There's always new stuff about it, and you know, there's a double-edged sword, as we have said here on the show many times. It's been frustrating because information's been so hard to get, but at the same time, it keeps it top of mind, right? Do you remember how Governor Greg Abbott went to a high-dollar fundraiser north of Houston in Walker County, that's where Huntsville is, on the very uh, same day as the shooting. In fact, he was in Taylor County, which I know you know where that is, that's Abilene. He was in Abilene when he announced from the microphone on television that he knew that at least 14 children had been dead, had been shot dead, and we know that the number grew from there, and he may have known about you know exactly what the number was by the time he got to this fundraiser, because it takes a little while to get from Abilene to Walker County, no matter how you go, by the way, if you were flying, it would take a little while. If you were driving, it would take, I think, three and a half hours, something like that. So they have had uh, plenty of time during that trip to make a decision about whether this was really the right thing to do. Do you remember what Governor Abbott said about it the next day when he was asked at a press conference um, by a reporter who said, hey, was it appropriate for you to go to a fundraiser after you had already learned that at least 14 kids, and later we found out 19 children and some teachers had been killed at the school, and here's what he said. So first, with regard to uh, yesterday, uh, I was uh, actually in Taylor County responding to a different disaster, a disaster of uh, fires that had uh, ripped through Taylor County and destroyed 20 homes, and that is when I uh, learned uh, about the shooting that was taking place pretty much at that time uh, here. Uh, on the way back to Austin, uh, I stopped and let people know uh, that I could not stay, that I needed to go, uh, and I wanted them to know what happened uh, and get back to Austin so that I could continue my collaboration with Texas law enforcement to make sure that all the needs were being met uh, here in the Uvalde area. Now, it's one thing to omit things, it's just to leave things out, but I'm going to point out two things that sound quite inaccurate to me. The governor said that on the way back to Austin, he let people know at a fundraiser that he couldn't stay and he needed to get on back to the governor's mansion, back to the seat of state government. Um, Jeremy, am I inaccurate or accurate to say that Walker County is not on the way to Austin from Abilene? Yeah, definitely not. Unless you going around your elbow <laughs> to get there. So. Yeah, it, that that's that's the long country dirt road way to get from uh, Abilene to Austin. So that's number one. Number two, in listening to his comments, 
would you think that he stayed for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, maybe even just five minutes to kind of say hi to people? Would you, based on his commentary there, would you say that he was there for hours or for minutes? Yeah, it sounds like it would quick pop in and pop right back out, right? So that you're thinking like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and then you're on the road. Sure. Right. And, 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 you know, if you wanted to be polite and try to say hello to everyone who was there, I mean, maybe you could even get you know away with an hour, right? Talk Because I don't know how many people were in attendance. I don't, I don't have that information. Would it surprise you to know that the governor was actually there in Walker County at this high dollar fundraiser after he had learned of the deaths of all these children for three hours or so? The Dallas Morning News reported out following up on our reporting at quorumreport.com. They had the headline this morning that Governor Greg Abbott stayed at fundraiser for hours after Uvalde shooting. He got to Huntsville based on the records that they were able to obtain. He got there at uh, 4.52 p.m. on May 24th, and he was driven about two miles to a local supporter's house and didn't leave the city of Huntsville until almost 8 o'clock at 7.47 p.m. that night. So he did kind of hang out Hobnob, and you might remember some of the reporting in the Washington Post and other places after this, Jeremy, they quoted uh, some GOP sources who said that they had guessed that maybe he had gone to a fundraiser instead of going straight to Uvalde, and they were just sort of joking about it to themselves, and then they were sort of shocked to find out that they were correct. I can tell you now how I found out about it and how we reported it first at quorumreport.com. The day after the shooting, I got a text message from a source who said, Basically this, they said, would you like to know where your governor was right after he announced the deaths of at least 14 children in Uvalde? And the person said, here's a hint. He was doing what he does best. Well, I texted back and said, well, if he wasn't at a fundraiser, then I don't even have an answer because that's the that's the thing that he excels at the most is is fundraising. But Jeremy, to to tell people, hey, I just stopped in brief thing, no big deal. And then the truth comes out that he was there for three hours. I think that's significant. Yeah, it sounds like he was there for the entire dinner. You know, that that time period looks like you get there, you know, five, six o'clock and, you know, perfect time to mingle with folks. So it does not sound like a guy who like, I just had to pop in and I'm going immediately to Uvalde because those people are going to need, you know, every leader in the state of Texas behind them. Yeah. And as you have said before, it's a little surprising that he didn't set up like a mobile command center there, like a mobile governor's office to be in Uvalde for maybe a few weeks. Now, in the meantime, you have seen where the Uvalde school board and I think the city council, county commissioners and others have been saying in a Trump county, they are saying that they want gun restrictions enacted in Texas and they want a special session of the legislature. There's only one person by law in the Texas Constitution who can call for a special session of the legislature, that would be the governor who was on KHOU uh, television in uh, Houston. And he was talking to Len Cannon, who's a veteran newsman there. And uh, he asked Abbott about whether he will listen to those folks in Uvalde and other Texans as well who want to see some sort of restrictions on guns put in place. Of course, a special session would have to happen for that because that would require a change in law. And here's how that went on the TV in H-Town. Uvalde School Board and City Council calling on a special session, calling for you to call a special session to raise the minimum age for buying an assault rifle. Will you call such a special session? So what I've done already uh, is I issued a charge to the Texas House and Texas Senate uh, to begin uh, investigating any and all matters uh, concerning uh, what happened in Uvalde as well as what we as a state 
need to do to respond to that tragedy. And investigations have been conducted by both chambers on all those topics, one of which led to that 77-page investigative report that was issued by the House of Representatives. Of course, none of that has anything to do with calling a special session to change Texas law. Cannon followed up about that. So, Governor, you're talking about you're calling for investigations. I think everybody would agree that's a good idea. But will you, in fact, call a special session specifically about raising the limit on who can buy an assault weapon? Well, listen, uh, there, there is no agreement on anything like that whatsoever. What there is agreement on that everybody agrees upon, uh, and that is uh, we need to uh, get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem that was uh, abundantly clear with regard to the shooter there in Uvalde uh, was a very serious mental health issue. Mental health issues, of course, do play into this, Jeremy, but I think also part of the root problem is that a young man potentially with mental health issues, is able to get his hands on a weapon that even with no training, you can use to liquefy children, right? So, so uh, you do have even Republicans. And again, as, as I would point out over and over again, Uvalde County is a Republican area, right? The Democrats from Uvalde have to talk a little bit different than, you know, from what the Democrats would say in other parts of the state. The state representative, for example, from uh, from that area, Tracy King, he's got a different record on gun issues than a Democrat from Houston or Dallas, uh, for example. Um, and so, look, you are looking at people who are asking for what I would describe and others have described as the bare minimum when it comes to some changes in gun laws, raising the age from 18 to 21 to buy an assault rifle, maybe a red flag law, maybe something uh, along the lines of what was included in uh, the funding um, that was that was provided for uh, in that bill that was passed by John Cornyn, uh, as an example. These are all, you know, nothing like, uh, you know, a, a mandatory buyback uh, a program for uh, assault rifles like Beto O'Rourke was talking about. And when the governor says that there's no agreement on any of this stuff, I'm here to tell you, this is a legislature that has been, just very candidly, they have been compliant whenever Greg Abbott has asked for something on his desk. Can you think of any major piece of legislation in the time he's been governor that he asked them for and they didn't give him? So if he was to say, hey, not that he's going to do this at all, but if he was to say, hey, look, I want a bill on my desk that raises the age from 18 to 21 to buy an assault rifle, I'm pretty sure they would do it. Yeah, but politically, there's no way Abbott wants the legislature meeting as we approach 100 days till Election Day. You know, talk about a nightmare. He would actually own everything that gets said in that, you know, legislative chamber. And we know they can go a little right of center, <laughs> saying it in the most calm <laughs> yes. way possible, right? Right. Yep. Well, and when it comes to abortion, which we'll talk about, when it comes to uh, gun violence, uh, it does seem that the kind of things that Abbott was heralding, to your point, and to a point that I've made over and over again, is ad nauseum, the kind of things that he would be just, uh, you know, uh, promoting everywhere and heralding before the March primary, that's one thing. The kinds of things he wants to talk about now, that's completely different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, these issues are not winners for him. You know, if you look at how little he's been talking about Yavaldi, you know, on his TV appearances, almost all of his TV appearances are about, uh, you, know, you know, focusing on the border, 
uh, what, what's going on down there. It's like, which shows you that their, their polling shows what we've seen in the public polling. You know, it's like, you know, talk about right. the border. Uh, that has more a chance of winning you voters than talking about your position on uh, guns and gun violence. That is not winning people over at this point. So they're just not talking about that nearly as much as they are the border at this point. Yeah, and those are the kinds of things, um, it, you know, when it comes to guns and, and abortion uh, restrictions and all of that, that really appeal to that primary voter, not the general election voter. So that's why I'm sort of surprised by the emphasis that Governor Abbott is putting on something that really is a GOP primary issue, which is, quote unquote, school choice or school vouchers. You know, school choice is sort of the focus group tested marketing name for school vouchers. Another one of the uh, names that these folks, that the supporters of it like to use is, they call it uh, education savings accounts, which sounds like health savings accounts. But when you hear education savings account, think voucher because that's what it is. So I saw where Governor Abbott this week on Monday was among the conservatives to meet with this guy who I was not familiar with almost at all. So I had to do a little bit of research, Jeremy. You know, I like to at least kind of half know what I'm talking about. This dude, Corey DeAngelis, who is one of the top national supporters of school vouchers. And I, I don't know if he uses the word vouchers. I don't think so. He certainly didn't use it in anything that I heard earlier this week. But DeAngelis, I thought it was D'Angelo, but it's DeAngelis. He was... Um, posting a bunch of selfies and videos with conservative lawmakers. He did, he did post um, a video shake or a, a picture rather of him shaking hands with Governor Abbott and he captioned it. Uh, it's time for, this is what the quote is. You'll hear it a bunch. He says, it's time for Texas to fund students, not systems. So he appeared also with some state representatives, representative Brian Harrison from the Waxahachie area was in this video with DeAngelis. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, uh, Waxahachie just south of DFW. They're pretty conservative there and it's and it's largely rural. So that kind of surprised me to see that particular Republican lawmaker saying this. Texas should be leading on education freedom and every other freedom. So it is past time that Texas funds students, not systems. So you see, this is their cute little thing. Harrison says it's time to fund students, and then DeAngelis says, not systems. And when he says not systems, he does this little move with his hand. Maya, what does that hand motion look like to you? Was it, do you do, tell me tell me if I'm describing this well at all? It kind of to me looks like the hand motion people would make whenever they say booyah. That's exactly what it is. is that, I also kind of It's like a booyah. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. of like a rapper hype man kind of thing from the 2000s or the <laughs> 90s. So Will, Will Smith might have made a move like that, something like that. Okay, all right. Um, so he goes, not systems. Now, some of the uh, Republicans who appeared with DeAngelis in these videos, some were more energetic than others. You just heard from Harrison. Here's uh, GOP House candidate, Carrie Isaac. It's time for Texas to fund students. Not systems. Same thing. Uh, with the hand motion. Now, my friend, Representative Steve Toth, was the one, you remember this, Jeremy, he carried legislation to ban critical race theory in Texas schools. I'm not sure if his ban is working because he was there as well with DeAngelis saying that teachers need to be able to be free to teach, uh, you know, accurate lessons. And maybe in private schools, they could do a better job of that. And we want to communicate that it's time for Texas tax dollars to start following teachers and students, not systems, not systems. Kids come first 
and great teachers want to follow great kids and they want to be in an environment where they can teach. Where they can teach because guess what's being funded? Students, not systems. And this guy even got a small room full of people in the tax-free building owned by the Texas Public Policy Foundation to play along with all of this. It's time for Texas to fund students. Not systems. Now, of course, Texas does fund students through a system that is spread across 254 counties and two time zones. And if you know anything about the way the Texas school finance system works, Jeremy, it is, as I said, a little complicated, right? And the reason that it's complicated is because what the Constitution says, and I could read from it, and you can, you can read from it, um, it's Article 7, Section 1. I'll give you the redneck version of what it says. It says it doesn't matter where you live or what your daddy does for a living that you get an equal shot at an education. That's basically what it says, right? It says that if you are in El Paso or El Campo or Brown County or Jefferson County or Spearman, Texas, which I know you're familiar with, south side of San Antonio, inner city Houston, um, Oak Cliff in Dallas, any of these places, it doesn't matter. You're if you're a kid in a public school in Texas, you're supposed to get the same resources. And the bottom line on it is, and, and look, it can get complicated. That discussion can get real complicated, but this part is not complicated. Um, the state strives toward equalization of resources for kids everywhere. And as you know, in rural parts of the state, that is very difficult to do because in some of the places that I mentioned, they naturally have more resources right where they are, right? And then in other cases, you've got to move money to those places. This is why we have what's called the quote unquote Robin Hood system, which is uh, controversial and upsets a lot of people, but it's the way we get to uh, doing what's in the Texas constitution. And the bottom line is if you take money out of the system to fund some other program, then that means there's less cash for the students who attend public schools all over the state. And we have some schools right now, Jeremy, you probably saw the reports on this, that are already small, small districts that are moving to four-day school weeks because they can't afford to attract enough teachers and talent there to be able to teach these kids. And if you start taking money out of that system, you are defunding the students all across the state because of the way that the system is set up. What do you think? Yeah, well, absolutely. Like the 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 funding formulas have all along, you know. Yeah, that's so complicated to kind of work other than trying to balance it off. We had a lot of problems, particularly in the 80s, where school districts were mm -hmm. vastly different from one to the next. But, yeah, there's supposed to be a protection in there that, like, everybody's going to get that you know, same education. That funding is going to follow, you know, the same amount of funding is going to follow the student to the school to get them education. Uh, but, man, this private school voucher program thing, man, I feel like I'm in this perpetual flashback to you know the 90s and 2000s it's like you know you remember you know uh george w bush saying this is the time for vouchers and like he was mm -hmm. gonna push for it and then rick perry like he said it's time for vouchers you know it's like and he got he got really aggressive about it and now we have yep. greg abbott saying back in you know march and april uh that this mm -hmm. is going to be his issue this is the time to do it and he says that legislature is ready to do it more than ever uh and he thinks he's got the key to it but look you know this as well as anybody you follow the texas house long enough and you realize this is a gigantic 
hill to climb. As you mentioned, a lot yeah. of those, you know, rural communities, who are they represented by these small, you know, uh, house districts? And those folks have a lot on the line. When you start talking about vouchers, there's a lot of complications in rural areas that mm-hmm. don't have private schools, that don't have other charter schools to go to. And then even in the urban centers, you're talking about like, you know, as he was talking about, don't fund systems. My question will ultimately be, what about corporate you know, entities, do those count as symptoms, mm-hmm. as, as systems as well? Because a lot right. of that money will follow into for profit, for profit, you know, private schools. And so then you mm-hmm. have to start asking questions. Well, is that what he's intending for it to go to those corporations or will there be protections to make sure it doesn't go into private corporations, you know, that, you know, who knows who benefits from those in the end. So it's a very complicated issue. And like, you know, quick, you know, you know, spicy little slogans are great, but there's a, mm-hmm. le, you know, logistically a mountain to climb in the, the, the Texas house that, you know, I want to hear how we get there, you know, uh, granted having Abbott fully on board. And if he's the governor, mm-hmm. will certainly improve that possibility. But if it's Beto, you know, obviously this whole conversation is moot and there's no chance, you know, any voucher program would get signed by Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, and in the Texas House, uh, I think for the at least the last uh, three or four sessions, every time that the Texas budget is debated, there's always an amendment offered uh, by a Democrat, uh, which is supported by at least a hundred members. It's a supermajority of the House to prohibit any tax dollars from flowing to uh, from flowing to uh, a voucher program. Uh, so it it seems to be something that is blocked. I think there may be a couple of different things. As I mentioned earlier, um, hey, it, Governor Abbott, when he asked for something on his desk, this legislature has given it to him, but this one might be too tall an order. Um, I, let me ask you this, because you covered politics in Florida and now work back here in your home state of Texas. What's the difference between, I mean, you have two Republican states, one that years ago embraced a school voucher program, you know, one of the big school voucher programs in the country. And in Texas, it just has not happened. What's fundamentally different in your mind between the two and why it hasn't happened here? Well, I I think it's the urban versus rural split uh, in the counties and the vocal nature of of those rural areas, right? Texas just has a lot more people who live outside the metro areas. And in Florida, look, there are plenty of people who live outside the metro area. I'm not saying there aren't any, but you know, the predominant you know rowers on that issue were Miami Dade, uh, Orlando, and Tampa. They just had mm-hmm. so much more influence. And you know, you put that together, that's 99% of the Florida legislature. Uh, that's not the case in Texas. You know, we have just such bigger divisions and. And, you know, as I've said before, it's like there's a complication with like, you know, UIL, interscholastic sports, you know, type issues, too, that like there's there's folks in out in the in West Texas. When you start talking about school choice, you know, the first question is, well, what does that do to our football program? You know, it's like mm-hmm. and, and I, I don't want to make light of that, but it's going to be an important no. issue for anybody yeah. trying to push school choice to get it through. Again, you know, W and Perry couldn't do it. You know, it's like, you know, mm. and, and as I look at Greg Abbott, you know, does he have the gusto to do this? If, if he had campaigned on it in his first campaign and said, this is what's going to happen, I might think differently. Yeah. But it just feels like he's kind of late on this. Not that, you know, he's talked about being in support of school choice before, but he never went mm. where he went, you know, with the word voucher like he did uh, just a couple of months ago. So he's kind of in a different lane on this than I've heard him. And it's going to take a lot 
for him to kind of get that through if he truly believes that's where we're going. Yeah, and it was also interesting this week to see that it was a Democrat who got a lot of attention uh, from Texas, uh, a Democrat from Texas getting all this uh, blowback for what he said about vouchers. I, I, I would have thought more of the coverage might be about what Abbott was doing, but instead it was uh, Mike Collier who is running uh, for lieutenant governor against Dan Patrick. He is the uh, Democratic nominee for light gov, as we say around here. Uh, and Collier went after the Republican incumbent, Patrick, on the issue of vouchers, which Patrick, of course, has consistently supported and actually gotten bills passed through the Texas Senate on that. But, of course, it's always died in the House. This is what uh, Collier said at the Democratic convention in Dallas a couple weeks ago. If Dan Patrick gets another term, he's already told us he's coming after your school and he's coming after your teacher. He wants to privatize and profitize our public schools. As lieutenant governor, I will lead the legislature to amend our Constitution to ban forever private school vouchers. You know why? Because vouchers are for vultures. It was the vouchers are for vultures that got the attention of, and listen to this list, Jeremy, not, not necessarily people I would have thought would weigh in on the lieutenant governor's race in Texas. Senator Ted Cruz was very upset. He suggested that Collier is somehow racist, that he hates black children because he doesn't want to see more school choice options for them. Laura Ingram of Fox News Channel, who I'm not surprised that she weighed in on this because she is a close ally of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. He likes to talk about how he was the guy as a radio station owner in Houston. He was the guy to first put Laura Ingram on the air in Houston on her radio show. So it seems like he gets favors. <laughs> Some of the segments that you've seen Patrick on the Laura Ingram show, they seem like they were a favor to him because a lot of times when he's on the air with her, it seems like they're running out of time and she needs to let him go. So it, it, it's almost like they made time for him to be on the show. Uh, Dana Lesh, former NRA spokesperson, also lashed out at Collier. The Texas Public Policy Foundation, they were upset with him. And, of course, Senator Paul Bettencourt, one of our devoted listeners, was also upset with Collier about all this. On Fox News Channel, Nicole Neely was interviewed. It's either Neely or Neely. I think it's Neely. She's with a group with sort of an Orwellian name. It's called Parents Defending Education. And she says it's very unfortunate when people go after school voucher programs and, and make up names for them like, uh, you know, like vultures. I think it's laughable that the teachers unions are claiming that there's no accountability. Let's think about who kept schools closed in America for two years working behind the scenes with the CDC. Children have faced monumental learning loss in, in many cases, which will never be made up. You know, it is impossible to fire teachers. I think about the rubber rooms in New York City. And so the fact that they are saying that this program is unaccountable is absolute garbage. Because at the end of the day, if people or parents are not getting what they want from a school, then they will walk with their dollars somewhere else. That's accountability. Right now, families are trapped in failing systems, and that hurts the poorest and most, uh, and most, um, you know, the, the families that are least able to fend for themselves. So it's it's despicable that they're calling this program names. So you mentioned that you felt like some things might be different. I, I do agree uh, on that point. This debate might shift a little bit, Jeremy. I, I, I heard this woman, Neely, and others talking a lot about, and you heard her there say that, who was it that shut down the schools? For a while. And she went on to talk about critical race theory and, um, you know, the teaching of um, sensitivity about LGBTQ issues and things like that. Some things that some parents are upset about. You remember earlier this year, Governor Abbott had, had you know, mentioned some of those things as well and said that because of the shutdown of schools, because of mass mandates, because of some of these other things 
that some parents have been upset with schools about. Abbott had said, because of all that, there might be one of the biggest pushes you've ever seen in your life for school choice in Texas. And it seems like a very concerted effort to have all of these different issues that people are whipping folks up about when it comes to public schools in the state and all around the country as well, that once you've convinced uh, enough people that you do have all these problems with the schools, which really doesn't have that much to do with what you know kids are actually learning in class. We don't really see CRT taught anywhere in Texas. I still have not seen any evidence of that. Um, of course, there were the challenges that went along with a global pandemic and what schools are supposed to do with that, mass mandates and all of that. But not a lot of this has to do with the quality of the education that the kids are getting. And Abbott himself, to your point about rural schools, when he was on the radio in Lubbock back in May, I think, with Chad Hasty, he had said, hey, look, for those of you in Lubbock County, don't worry about it. I'm sure that you all pretty much universally love your public schools out here. And he said that there's no, quote, no upside nor a downside for any of you, which is sort of an interesting pitch, Jeremy, to tell people that we're going to pass this big initiative and it's not actually going to help you any. Well, and remember also in that same interview, he said uh, when he was pressed for details on how it worked, he said, oh, that's for the legislature to sort out. <laughs> it's like, so he's yeah, just right. like, can they <laughs> hand them the grenade and you can then sort out how you're going to restructure schools <laughs> throughout the panhandle and you know, West Texas and take on that heat. So, uh, yeah, so this is this is very much a West versus East uh, kind of issue that like, man, there's a lot to kind of work with on this. Uh, and it, what was mm-hmm. interesting, like Florida's, you know, push for this took a while you know this wasn't overnight you know and and uh, oddly enough it was jeb bush who was kind of the key to kind of getting that through when w was putting it in his you know state of the state address to kind of push for you know, uh, remember Jeb was it was governor of Tech of, of Florida at that mm-hmm. point, and so they were kind of both right. working on this, and it, it's kind of a great example of okay. You have two bushes pushing, you know, school vouchers in two different states. You know, how are they different? Well, Florida took it and Texas said, no, thank you. Leave us alone. We're moving on. (laughs) Yeah, decades of the debate. So we will uh, continue to track what happens with that. You're aware of this group, Mothers Against Greg Abbott. I um, I've got uh, I've seen some of their signs in my neighborhood. Of course, I live in Austin. So, of course, there's a lot of you know, signs that are anti-Republican or don't like, don't like Greg Abbott or pro-Democrat. Of course, that, that happens all over Travis County for sure. But they've kind of been going viral with some of these online ads that they have. You saw the first one uh, from Mothers Against Greg Abbott, where it was um, a bunch of different mothers who were talking about different things that they're concerned about. And that got them some national attention. Those issues that they're worried about uh, include abortion restrictions, the electricity grid, the attacks on transgender children in Texas, and I think maybe a couple of other things as well. Well, they have a new ad out that depicts Abbott as the decision maker when a woman is facing a terrible decision about terminating a pregnancy because of a fetal abnormality. And this is how the ad starts as a doctor talking to a woman who's getting some terrible news. There's no easy way to say this, but your baby has a catastrophic brain abnormality. What what does that mean? It means that parts of her brain didn't form. Your daughter, if she is to survive, will live only a matter of hours after birth. During that time, she will experience a multitude of seizures and ultimately aspirate on her own bodily fluids. She will suffer. A decision will need to be made on termination. I wish I could tell you what to do, 
but there is only one person who can make this choice. How much time do I have? And that person is Greg. Greg? Yes, the doctor means Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, who he then calls on the telephone. Listen, I've got a pregnancy that could... Yes, but I think this one is the... Yes, okay. Sure. Sure. Okay, I'll let them know. Yeah, that's going to be a no. Best of luck to you. So it does seem, Jeremy, that on all these abortion restrictions that are now proposed after the fall of Roe versus Wade, I mean, we already have in Texas a what uh, Republicans call a trigger law, which I wish people would stop calling it that. Just say it's a ban on abortion. Just, just say that. You know, it's a, why does everybody adopt the language of people who are pushing a certain agenda? I don't know, but that, but I don't get to choose the rules. So anyway, this law will go into effect soon that says that abortions are illegal in Texas. And as we have reported here, some Republicans want to go even further, right? There are Republicans who want to prohibit women from leaving the state if they seek an abortion in another state uh, where abortion is legal, like uh, New Mexico, for example. And it just seems like Abbott doesn't want to talk about this. Does that, uh, yeah. it, does that seem right to you? Does that seem fair? Uh, everywhere I see, if he's asked about it, he wants to move on. Yeah, absolutely. This is just not a, an issue that he wants to dig into. You know, again, this close to a, a general election in which, you know, he knows this issue uh, is very divisive and can only lose him people in the middle based on some of the language that we're talking about. Yeah, back to that KHOU interview in Houston, uh, Len Cannon asked uh, the governor about whether he would support what some Republicans want to see now, which is telling women they cannot leave Texas if an abortion uh, is what they are seeking. Governor, uh, will you penalize women who leave Texas to go to a state to get an abortion where abortion is legal? Let me tell you two things about that. Uh, first, uh, the abortion laws in the state of Texas don't punish the mother. Uh, they punish those who provide the abortion. Second, on the leaving the state, you may recall uh, that issue was addressed by an opinion uh, issued by Justice Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, uh, taking that issue off the table. Jeremy, that's almost like just sweeping it under the rug. That's as a quick as an answer as he can possibly give. And when it comes to the question of uh, abortion laws in Texas punishing women, I can tell you among the legal community, there's some debate about that. So you may have seen where some Republican lawmakers want to see full enforcement, both civil and criminal enforcement of the 1925 abortion ban in Texas. In, in, you know, in the 1920s, lawmakers here said no abortions. And in that law, a, a person who provides an abortion, performs an abortion, we would assume that would be the doctor. That's what they were thinking of at the time. That person could serve time in prison, up to five years, I believe. And there are some uh, readings of that, that that say that it could be longer, depending on what the particulars of the case were. Uh, at that time, though, and this is where the debate comes in, they did not contemplate or think about the later fact that we now know, which is a woman can uh, perform an abortion on herself at home through medication. So a plain language reading of that law would say that if a woman performs an abortion on herself at home with medication, that she should, you know, should be prosecuted, that she should go to jail. She should go into the Texas uh, Department of Criminal Justice, where the, in a lot of places they don't have air conditioning. Right in the in the middle of the 
105-degree summer. Um, now, I was told by a Democrat who was looking at that uh, and had talked with some attorneys, and again, there was a debate about this, that they were saying that, look, what, what you might see around the state is you might have a prosecutor say, if they were to you know, go ahead and enforce that criminally, which there's a, a whole list we published at quorumreport.com. There's a list of Republican lawmakers who want the state Supreme Court to say that criminal enforcement of that can go forward today, they, they would like for the state Supreme Court to just let that happen now. And with the state Supreme Court lately, it wouldn't shock me if they allowed for that after the recording of the podcast on you know Friday night. They've been doing a lot of some Friday night, as they call news dumps, from the state Supreme Court lately. Um, now, I'm not predicting that that's going to happen, but the fact is, that a prosecutor could maybe bring a case on this and the uh, woman who might be prosecuted could have a good argument that it should be dismissed because lawmakers in 1925 didn't, con you know, didn't even contemplate the idea that a woman would be able to perform an abortion on herself. But you see where we're going with this, Jeremy, and it, it's, not, um, it's not unreasonable to me that you do have critics of some of these conservative lawmakers who are saying, you know, they do want to take Texas back in time. If, if you want to go forward with policies, uh, you know, that are more restrictive to abortion, you know, in the next legislative session or the one after that or the one after that, have that debate. But be, to be demanding that you take the state back to the 1920s, that's a political ad for the Democrats that writes itself. Yeah, and, after, and, and I've been hearing on the campaign trail, too, this idea that some Republicans want to punish businesses who help women go to other states to get abortions as well. So you kind of almost kind of feel that heartbeat bill part two kind of coming where, you know, you would empower people to sue companies, you know, that would help, you know, women, you know, travel across the state line or cover, you know, the cost of going to New Mexico or flying to New York or whatever. And so that, you know, mm -hmm. that conversation, again, is like, you know, like what what a dark conversation to potentially have during a general election. You know, during a primary, it's one thing. You know, Greg Abbott's probably much more willing to have the discussion now. But talking about these kinds of things, you know, just a difficult topic, you know, for him to kind of try to address and not potentially lose 80 percent of the audience who's listening to him, uh, because, it, you know, we've seen in the polling, you know, you know, most, you know, Texans and most Americans agree that a woman, you know, who, you know, is carrying a baby who is, is you know, like in that ad is not going to come to term. Uh, like she should be able to get an abortion. But there's all these questions now if like, you know, how are you going to get that if there are no providers who are willing to provide mm -hmm. that service in Texas? So even somebody who might qualify under the law to have an abortion, where are you going to get that? Like, how are you going to, you know, get that abortion? I'm, I'm just not sure. And I think those are questions that, you know, the governor does not want to have to kind of try to explore, you know, as we get close to early voting starting. Right. Right. And he was so articulate about it last year when he was you know, signing these bills and saying that, uh, you know, yeah, there's no exception for rape and incest, but we're going to wipe out all rape in Texas. That was his that was I wish I was making that up. That was his answer. By the way, I looked up. The guy who sings the Texas version of I've Been Everywhere, man, it's Brian Burns. I don't know why I could not think of that. But you have been everywhere, and I could probably sing the song with all of the all the towns you were in, and you were following the Beto O'Rourke campaign. There's some debate about the effectiveness of O'Rourke going to these places where there are almost no Democrats, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about counties where 
in some cases, it might be close to 90% of voters chose Donald Trump, Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz, Dan Patrick, and on down the line. I do think that the issues he's talking about in some of these places, at least from what I have seen, from the comfort of my lofty perch here in Austin, I've seen issues that should resonate with rural voters that he's talking about. So, for example, in Clarksville, Texas, and again, I like to think I know where all these people, but all these places are, and I don't. Texas is so vast. You can cover it for decades and still have some places pop up and you go, where is that? Clarksville is sort of out near Texarkana. It's sort of almost to Oklahoma where the dirt is red, I'm sure. And in Clarksville, uh, Beto was talking to a woman about, again, an issue that should matter to these folks in these areas. We've had so many rural hospitals just shut down. And if people need serious care, they've got to go to Dallas. They've got to go to Houston. They've got to go to San Antonio, Austin, one of our major urban centers. And this woman was sort of joking about the fact that, look, they haven't had a hospital there in that area, in that part of the state, for years. My friends calls it a buzzard roost. Mm. <laughs> it looks like it's been bombed. So the, the hospital goes up in 1976. And it serves this community <laughs> and, and comes down in 2013. Yeah. The lack of care on a regular basis to me was the biggest thing to hurt the community. Jeremy, um, one of the places that you were covering O'Rourke uh, was Spearman, Texas. Where is that? Oh, that, I'm glad you asked. It's, of course, in Hansford County. You know, which everybody knows okay. where that is. <laughs> not a, you know, not is a, that the is, panhandle? Yeah, it is way up in the panhandle. It is, yeah. uh, it's the people in Pampa, Texas say, boy, that's far north. <laughs> that's how far <laughs> north I was. So it was like, yeah, you're almost in the, in Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma panhandle. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the state senator uh, who is retiring, uh, Kel Seliger uh, from that area, you know, he uses a small private plane to be able to get to events around his district because it's giant. It takes in the panhandle, goes all the way down to the Permian Basin. Of course, it's been shifted up a little bit uh, in redistricting. But to give you a sense of how spread out people are there, because the way these districts are drawn, of course, I mean, in Houston, there are several state senators, right? Because those districts are more compact because there's more people, right? You're talking about at this point, roughly a million people per state senator almost. Um, out in Amarillo, that state Senate district is larger geographically than Indiana because those people are pretty spread out. There's, there's uh, as Alan Blakemore, uh, Dan Patrick's consultant said one time, that's where the cows and the chickens live out there. He was bragging about the fact that Dan Patrick beat David Dewhurst where the people actually live. And Dewhurst did better where the cows and chickens are. <laughs> and I thought that that marked an interesting moment in Texas politics, by the way. That was in uh, – what, 2014, and you had a one of the top Republican minds in Texas sort of mocking people who live out in the country, right? It, it really gives you a sense of where we are as the urbanization of the state keeps happening. So in Spearman, um, Beto ran into some interesting opposition, and Maya, we'll see if we can, if we can play that. Do you have, Maya, do you have the hamburger uh, confrontation ready to go here? Is that queued up? Yep, I got it. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So, so Jeremy, tell us, kind of describe what happened, Jeremy. Well, and this was interesting. So we get to this event. There's not many Democrats in Spearman, Texas. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. And, and there's only 138 that voted for uh, Beto O'Rourke in, in uh, 
the last, you know, in his 2018 uh, U.S. Senate race, 138 people, right? That's all that voted for him. So, you know, for the whole county. Right. So Spearman's even less than that. So <laughs> it's funny, as we were right. getting into the event, I did remind Beto O'Rourke that he did win uh, 8.2% of the electorate there. And so, in which he yeah. said jokingly to me, so if I get to nine, things are improving. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. But so here we are, we're in this event, and there were a bunch of protesters out there. And they were baking mm-hmm. in a hundred degree weather, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Beto event was in a park pavilion, uh, and his mm-hmm. you know, campaign said, Hey, y'all don't stand out in the sun. And he brings them into the park pavilion, gives them all cold water. Okay. They're all there mm-hmm. now part of this event to be able to ask any question they want of Beto O'Rourke. And that's what you're about to hear here. Yeah. And, and again, it's not even an air conditioned venue. This is just under like a metal roof. Yep. Is that right? Absolutely. I think I saw a picture of it. So, yeah. So this guy is unhappy with Beto. Take a listen. Um, that's what I want to focus on. Real solutions. The sums that we have right now, they're not getting the job done. Sir, why are you against us raising cattle? You, you said that it, it uh, causes global warming. I didn't say that. You were on TV saying that. I, I didn't say that. Are you for us raising cattle? I am for us raising I, I, I just ate a hamburger for dinner last night. <laughs> <laughs> so Democrats applauding a guy eating beef. It's a little different from what you might see in San Francisco or you know, some liberal place like Austin where they want me to eat Beyond Meat or something, and I'm not about to do that. Jeremy, what's the value really in – I mean, you've you've observed him at these events. What's the value of a Democrat campaigning in these places? Because let me just say this first. I've got to hear your answer on this. In 2018, I remember Beto attracting similar size crowds in a lot of these same places or, or, or very similar places, right? And my, my criticism or just observation about it, not even really criticism, um, would be that, hey, yeah, you might get several hundred people to show up in Lubbock, or you might get a hundred people at this thing in Spearman, or, you know, you might get 50 people out in, you know, some place near Marshall, Texas or something where there's, you know, almost no Democrats. And you would say, wow, that is a huge crowd, quote, for a Democrat, close quote, in that area. But in some of these places that might constitute, you know, the crowd might co- literally constitute every Democrat who lives in the region. Right. And so I sit there and I wonder, does that really make any difference at all? What, what do you think after watching some of these events? Well, yeah, th- th- there's definitely a part of me like, you know, if you're spending an hour to get to a place with, as I mentioned, 138 Democrat potential voters, it seems like a lot of wasted time and money to go into these events. So I totally get that. Uh, the, the thing, you know, in 2018, uh, you know, the, you know, these rural counties in you know in the Panhandle and out in East Texas were kind of a big thing that helped you know Ted Cruz end up holding on in that race. You know, if you look at right. you know how badly he lost all of the major metros, he got clobbered in Houston and San Antonio in ways that we just haven't seen a Republican get clobbered in those places before. And so, what does he have to do? He had to build up the numbers in these other areas. 
Abbott kind of faces that same problem. And I think the work people know, like, look, you know, we're dealing with margins here. If we can kind of trim some of the margins in some of these places, that's one thing. But also when they're in a place like Spearman, they're not just talking to Spearman. And so I go to a place like this and I see TV cameras, you know, from the Amarillo stations. I see, you know, a reporter from the Washington Post, you know, I'm up there. It's like what they're what they're doing by going up there is they're kind of speaking, you know, on a more broadly in in a a broader way to more Texans than just those communities. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of feeding into kind of his, you know, his narrative of wanting to say, look, I'll go everywhere and recruit, you know, Mm -hmm. and and talk to any voters. And and, and there's a reality. It was what was kind of nice about that exchange, you know, not to be like uh, go overboard on it, but like, you know, people were, were asking him questions that he would normally not get in a town hall meeting, right? So he's hearing, you know, some woman who is an independent oil, you know, uh, worker who was trying to, you know, explain her problems that she's dealing with the industry. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to the farmers who are, who are telling him that they're kind of concerned because there aren't independent slaughterhouses and they're starting to get worried about the margins that they have. That's stuff you're never going to hear anywhere else. He's not going to hear that in a democratic town hall meeting in Dallas or Houston. Right. It's like, so he's actually right. picking up information that now if you listen to him on the trail he's talking about that you know as like Mm -hmm. yet another way as governor he thinks he can you know at least kind of work on this issue to try to figure out how do i deal with you know the fact that we don't have independent slaughterhouses so so i think he sees value in it but Mm -hmm. you know certainly it's a lot of time and resources spent on this and you just have to kind of have a faith if you're a, an O'Rourke supporter that this race is going to be close and every yeah. bit of margin you can squeeze out of these places. You know, I watch this in Florida all the time. You know, you know Senator mm-hmm. Bill Nelson, uh, who had been like this conservative Democrat who ended up winning, like he was able to limit his losses in rural parts of the state because he was from the rural areas and he could talk the language and he sounded like it. And he survived for 18 years in the United States Senate in Florida. And I think that's what Beto kind of needs to do. He needs to be able to like not just win Houston and Dallas and San Antonio, but he's just got to chip away somehow at this red wall that exists out in that Amarillo, Amarillo mm-hmm. North area is so red. Right. I'm sure that's the area that glows red from outer space. You know, if you want to kind of talk about someplace conservative, when eight points, you know, two percent of the people are willing to vote for you in 2018. Uh-huh. That's tough. That's a tough, you know, road to hoe on this point. On this point, right? We would uh, we would point this out previously on on, on various shows that um, you know, if rural Texas was its own state, it would be redder than Oklahoma. Yeah, and I don't just mean the dirt, right? So it's uh, <laughs> um, so Beto's at least trying to learn some things about what he had to talk to those folks about, right? And how to relate to real people. So. I would like to give you an example of the opposite. Did you hear this radio ad from the, as they say in Washington, the D trip? Is that what you worked in Washington? Do they call it the D trip, the D triple C? Yeah, the D trip. And D, it's, it's, like, it's funny. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Yeah, I've had so many, uh, you know, candidates tell me uh, there's some uh, typically very young people who work in a basement in D.C. who come up with some of the best ideas that don't fly yeah. <laughs> in anybody's state. <laughs> <laughs> they don't fly out here in the in the real world. Um, so the so the DCCC is apparently running or at least planning to run. I saw this uh, uh, just this week. 
they've got this radio ad where it's it's an appeal to Latino voters who are frustrated about the economy, which is, again, number one. I mean, we just saw the reports this week that, hey, we've had two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which is, by any textbook definition, a recession. There are a lot of people who have, Jeremy, been having this debate about whether it really is a recession, uh, you know, based on things that are happening in the job market, et cetera. But the, the news is not great on the economy. And that tends to always accrue to the benefit of the party that's out of power in Washington. Yes. Right. Not not out of power in your state government. Correct. Right. People people think of this stuff nationally. Right. So the DCCC trying to uh, the Democrats. I shouldn't be using the Washington acronyms. The Democrats are trying to appeal to Latinos and say, hey, I know you're worried about all that, but there are other things you should worry about as well. Jeremy, I want you to hear this entire radio ad and then we'll you know, figure out whether it makes any sort of sense whatsoever. Oh, my back and neck hurt. That's because you're working too much. Calmate, you should slow down. I can't. I need to make more money. Look, with gas prices through the roof and my kids needing daycare, it's not enough. Don't worry so much. I'm just so stressed out, and I don't know what else to do. What you could do is vote for Democrats. These Republican extremists have no plan to help us. But Democrats seem so out of touch. Not true. These MAGA Republicans are only working for rich people. Democrats know firsthand that even small price increases are hard on working families like ours. Democrats are finding solutions, unlike the Republicans. Calmate. What you could do is vote for Democrats. Paid for by DCCC. DCCC.org. Not authorized for any candidate or candidate's committee. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. I am glad that someone is responsible for the content of that advertising. Um, so here's some of the uh, feedback that I got from Latino Democrats in Texas. So I was asking, look, this is targeted to Latinos. I want to know what they think about it. And I would just say, Jeremy, open-ended, I would just ask this question. Is that a good advertisement or a bad advertisement? Does that work or not? Because here's the thing. If, a, if an advertisement doesn't get you to do what the advertiser wants you to do, then it's not a good ad, right? We used to have these debates when I was in radio for decades about what which commercials were the good ones. And, you know, you'll hear commercials where there's a jingle and it sounds really stupid. But I would tell people, you know what the thing about a jingle is? You remember it and you remember which business it was for, right? And in, in a lot of cases, you can sing the phone number that they want you to call, right? To, to, to go ahead and, you know, purchase their service. If you can remember the ad and what it's for and what you're supposed to do, then it's a good ad. I'm not sure that after listening to that, that I would be convinced. And this is based on the conversations that I had. I'm not sure that, that, you know, if I was a Latino in Texas, I'm not sure I would be convinced to vote for Democrats after listening to that. Here's I'm going to read to you one of the comments I got from uh, from a young uh, Latino uh, uh, staffer at the Capitol. He said, did you notice the messaging problem here? Latinos in Texas would say we can't pay the rent. We're angry with the out of touch national Democrats who are not even trying to pass another stimulus check or make any improvements to our lives with the majorities they still have. And the National Democrats' answer is, you should calm down. Your back hurts from working too hard? Well, January 6th was bad. Republicans are more extreme than us. Vote for the Democrats. 
They don't really have an answer about what they're doing to make your life better, Jeremy, uh, when it comes to all these economic anxieties that are out there. Yeah, it just feels like they should have a message of how we're dealing with the economy, right? You know, it's like just it makes sense to me. It's like vote Democrat. We'll make sure you get higher wages. That's what we do. Democrats fight for higher wages. You know, it's like, but wh- where is that? You know, they get too complicated. Again, this is <laughs> a, a, a candidate uh, uh, in Florida who I covered uh, who you know told me that the DCCC said they were going to send him more help. And he said, oh, please, no, don't do that. <laughs> Anything but that. Do not send me any more of your help because their help was just so off you know, kilter. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I, clearly, the DCCC, I'm not sure if they were talking to Latinos or have Latinos on staff from Texas to kind of help, you know, give them input. Uh, Chuck LaRocca, I don't know if you remember him. He's a, a consultant, you know, who it mm-hmm. really, it worked a lot with the Bernie people. Uh, yeah. You know, but like, he's, you know, really well known. He's in Texas. It's like, I, they should call him. You know, and just say, hey, can we give you a couple thousand bucks just to run this by you just so we don't sound like idiots? And like and Chuck would tell them, no, this is just not. No, no. Everything about this is garbage. So please move on. I mean, it it speaks to a few uh, problems with what's happening or the sort of the imbalance in our politics. And I've been studying a little bit on this about the rise of authoritarian regimes around the world. You know, look, Democrats are trying to make the case through the January 6th hearings and, and in some other venues that, look, we have these folks who are autocratic in nature, who want to take power in Washington and are, are basically are already in power in some places around the country. And they would argue that that includes Texas. Um, when you look at the rise of, you know, all of these sort of strongmen folks who, uh, you know, Donald Trump would be categorized that way. And Victor Orban and, you know, folks, you know, some leaders in South America as well, uh, Bolsonaro, for example, there's, there's sort of two schools of thought about how to deal with that if you're the opposition to it. One is to sort of call it out for what it is and say, these folks are extreme. These people are, are, are autocratic in nature. You're, you're sliding toward dictatorship. That's one way to deal with it. The other way to deal with it is to do what political scientists call normal politics, which is just be better than the opposition is at talking to the things that you're speaking to the issues that voters actually care about rather than trying to make them care about something that they don't care about. And one of the problems with the first approach and saying, wow, these people are autocratic and you don't want to have them in office. One of the problems with that is whenever there's a a political party making that argument, Jeremy, people kind of shrug it off and say, well, you know, you're being alarmist. That's not really happening. People don't really believe it as if it is happening. They don't believe it when it's happening. As we've said before, the thing about, um, about an inflection point is you don't know you're at the inflection point until later, right? And so people who end up in autocracies, dictatorships, they don't even really realize it when, you know, in in a place, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe, for example, where they would vote to give dictator powers to the guy who's in office. At that moment, they may not even realize that that's really what's happening. They may think about it later, right? And so for Democrats to be making this argument politically about January 6th is one thing. I would argue they should be, you know, talking more about it in terms of, uh, who ought to be going to jail over that if they're going to have any prosecutions and not really think that much about what it's going to do for the results in November? Because I don't expect it to have much impact at all in the elections. Yeah. And and the idea that the national Democrats would try to help continue to nationalize the election here in Texas is insane. You know, it's like, you know, right. politics 101 is like when it's a bad going on the, the national level for your party, get local. 
get very local. You know, it's like, so, you know, this is where, you know, going back yeah. to better work, he wants to talk about independent slaughterhouses in, you know, you know, Dumas, Texas and Spearman, Texas. He right. wants to get very local and try to kind of, he doesn't want to be talking about the January 6th hearings. He doesn't want to be talking about like, you know, global issues and, you know, yeah. what's going on in D.C. Focus on the local stuff. And so for the DCCC to say, right. oh yeah, here, we'll help you out. We'll talk about Let's a bunch of national, national issues well, that on, you I'm can gonna... now talk about. Dear listener, this is the sound of my head hitting the desk. Making it national in Texas? What are you doing? <sighs> That's enough show. I'm done. Is that enough show, Jeremy? Yeah, I'm just irritated. I, I need to go relax. I That's want them to think I want them to go. I want them to go to their corner and think about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough show. If you enjoy it, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. We don't judge you, but you can judge us by giving us the best rating that you can. Leave a nice comment. We appreciate it. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.